0: We're continuing with our series on Revelation. This is week number 33, um, Faithful Proclamation. So when Jesus gave us the Great Commission before he ascended into heaven, he commanded the church, us, the church in battle, which is represented by the 144,000 and all through the book of Revelation, he commanded us that we had a job to do, which was to go into all the world and teach and preach Everything he taught us. He told us to preach the gospel. That gospel is a precious message of grace and mercy and forgiveness that we know full well. But the fact of the matter is the gospel is also a warning of judgment for those who reject that offer of grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. And God's people have always battled this temptation to soften the gospel's warnings of judgment and just focus on mercy because that's more marketable. It focus groups better. And so because of that, I believe the church is under constant pressure to, for lack of a better term, truncate the gospel. To make it just about this grace and mercy and forgiveness through the work of Christ on the cross, who died for our sins so that we might live. And the main reason I believe is because we know that the world does not want to hear what the gospel says about the consequences of rejecting that gift of grace and mercy and redemption through the work of Christ on the cross. The world will tolerate our proclamation of God's mercy. Even if they don't like it, they'll go along with it. Sure, mercy is a good thing. But the world hates the proclamations about God's wrath. I thought God is a God of love. Aren't we all God's children? I don't want anything to do with the kind of God that you're talking about. Those are some of the lines that I've heard in my career as a pastor. But the fact of the matter is, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we cannot be silent about judgment. Okay? But... I believe that judgment is what convinces us that we need grace and mercy in the first place. That grace and mercy we love so much. So today's passage gives us insight into how followers of Jesus should handle this dilemma, this tension, this pressure to preach on mercy and grace, but kind of, you know, leave out judgment or at least maybe fast forward through it. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13 is our passage today. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drunk, uh, drink the wine of the wrath of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels." And in the presence of the Lamb. Interesting, in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast, its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. This is to us. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So this is the passage for this week. As we do at Grace Life, we divide each passage up into three different applications. Because without those three, you really have no idea what it's saying. You can guess, but it's just that, pure guess. So the first thing we look at is the history of the passage, which answers the questions, what about man? What did he do, and, and why and how did he do it? The history this week... I've entitled Babylon the Great. So understand what Babylon was. Babylon was actually, at this point in the first century, it became a nickname for Rome. So as we have discovered throughout Revelation, John uses historic symbolism from the Old Testament and the New. So a proper understanding of the book of Revelation requires us to know how John's readers, listen carefully, John's readers, not Americans, would interpret what Babylon symbolized. The Babylonian captivity was the darkest era in Jewish Old Testament history. It left a traumatic cultural mark, what the Jewish people endured in the Babylonian captivity. Jewish culture saw Babylon from that point forward as an iconic symbol of any ancient enemy at war with the people of God. They understood Babylon as the first of four world empires represented by Daniel's beast in chapter 2 and chapter 7 of Daniel. We've explored that already in this series on Revelation. Babylon represented and was described as the feet of clay. In other words, it was the foundation of the beast, the very first world empire controlled by the enemy that wants to suppress truth. And the scripture teaches us that there were three other empires that came after that. And the last one was greater than all of them, Rome. But Babylon became a term used by first century Jews to symbolize the entire history of earthly kingdoms, including ours today. All of which are controlled by that first beast that we learned about. All of Babylon's wickedness, all of Babylon's historical idolatry and cruelty and immorality, symbolizing a world that is intoxicated with the things of this life. Jews used Babylon, if you'll allow me to explain it this way, they used it sort of as a theological code word for Rome, indicating that they understood Rome was also a part of Daniel's beast vision. Peter used this idiom, as a matter of fact, in his closing greeting in his first letter. We went through 1 Peter, one of our series here, and he was referencing a very well-known woman who was so well-known, he didn't have to name her. He just said the woman, she was a treasured saint who lived in Rome at the time. And look what John or Peter says. She who was at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. See, even Peter did this. This is proof that Babylon was a symbol because Babylon had since long fallen. It was a symbol used to describe earthly kingdoms like Rome. So that's the first part of the history. Now I want to talk about this idea of a counterfeit Zion. Last week, you guys remember, if you if you were here and if you haven't, you can go back and listen. We learned how the Jews used the phrase Mount Zion the same way we use the word heaven today. It's a very exactly the same. It is a reference to the day, the hope for a day that God's people are brought together as one nation, one tribe under the reign of Jesus the Messiah. John's readers also used Babylon to describe any attempt by Satan to create his own evil counterfeit of Mount Zion. We've we've discussed how all throughout Revelation, one of the things that John does is reveal how Satan tries to counterfeit what God is doing. He did it with an unholy trinity. He does it with other places, and he does it here, trying to create a Mount Zion. Anything Satan uses to gather together all the inhabitants of earth under an ideology or anything else under his control. As a matter of fact, his first real attempt at this was in Genesis chapter 11 with the story of the Tower of Babel. That was Satan's first attempt to counterfeit Zion. Every human spoke one language. They built a tower as a monument saying, let us build a monument together to show our greatness. So John's readers knew that Babylon also represented the world systems in all its forms, built by the dragon with one goal, the dragon being Satan, with one goal to prevent Jesus from establishing his unified kingdom of God that we call heaven or Mount Zion. The next thing I want you to see historically is this idea, this word angel. Here, the word angel doesn't mean a heavenly being. It means a proclamation. So in Jewish literature, an angel wasn't just seen as a heavenly entity another specific direct use of this word was proclamation from God. Oh, I heard an angel. In other words, I heard a nation. So John's readers would have clearly, in context, seeing what we are reading in this passage, John's readers would have interpreted these three angels as three distinct proclamations, three separate messages sent from heaven to the earth. Three proclamations given To the people of God. We know this because in the first part of our passage it says, the first angel was directly overhead, and I heard it was an eternal gospel. Who does Jesus say preaches the gospel? We preach the gospel, not angels. The 144,000, the church in battle, the church on earth preaches the gospel. Three proclamations that are given to the people of God to proclaim to all the earth, but at three different moments. In redemptive history. So, what we read here is a symbolic history of the whole story of redemption from the moment Jesus resurre- uh, resurrected and ascends all the way through until his return and judgment of evil. So, that's the history of our passage. Understanding those words is important. All right. Then we look at the spiritual section. What about God? What is he doing? Why and how does he do it? I've called this section three proclamations. So each symbolizes, each proclamation symbolizes a time period in redemptive history after the resurrection. So let's look at the first proclamation or what I'm calling the first angel, which is clearly it's called itself the gospel. It says, I heard an angel overhead declaring an eternal gospel. The first proclamation directly overhead is a proclamation declared to every tribe and every nation. It says that in chapter, uh, verse, in chapter 14, verse 6. An eternal gospel to every nation and every tribe. Everyone on the earth hears this. The phrase directly overhead is important. It means this message is visible and audible to everyone. No one can miss it. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 20. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, so they are without excuse. So in the past, this is what's ironic, right, or interesting. In the past, in the Old Testament, all of God's proclamations from heaven were always to one nation or another, Whether it be to Israel or a warning to Israel's enemies, it was always kind of had a narrow focus. This one is completely different. It's the first proclamation all through Scripture that was meant for every inhabitant of the earth. It's the widest proclamation from God in human history since Genesis. It is a call to heed the gospel. The proclamation is that every person will be on either one side or the other, and there is no middle ground. There are no independents, <laughs> no free agents, no wait and sees. Acts chapter 17, look what Paul says here, or look what Luke says here. God overlooked ignorance for a time, Old Testament but now he commands all people everywhere to repent do you see how it's connected to today's passage for he has fixed a day he will judge the world see how that's connected to today's passage in righteousness by a man he has appointed and who is that man it is the lamb it is jesus it is an ominous call for all humanity to repent i hear phone <laughs> it's an ominous call for all humanity to repent, to fear God, and to worship him. It is the proclamation Jesus gave to us before he left earth to proclaim to all the nations everything he has taught us, correct? It's a proclamation, frankly, that the dragon hates. It's a proclamation the dragon wants to silence or to corrupt or to downplay. It's like the one he corrupted in Genesis when he said to Eve, did God really say if you eat the fruit, you'll die? He didn't say that, did he? It's the same game. This proclamation is the gospel. This proclamation is our gospel, our message that Grace Life and other faithful churches preach and proclaim every week. So that's the first proclamation or the first angel. The second proclamation or the second angel is the return of Jesus. So the next two proclamations are future proclamations. We can talk about them. We can say we hope for this. But these are proclamations that are real time saying at some point the people of God will proclaim this and it will be happening. The second proclamation will be our celebration of the day Jesus returns and destroys the beast. It is a a direct fulfillment, a future promise of the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2. Look what it says in chapter 2. A stone cut out by no human hand, Jesus is the cornerstone. A stone cut out by no human hand struck the image on its feet of iron and clay. What did I tell you? Iron and clay of feet represented Babylon, right? Uh, Struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, breaking them in pieces. Then the iron, clay, and then everything else above it, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, the other three empires, became like the dust of summer threshing floors. The wind carried that dust away. Not a trace could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, Mount Zion, filled the whole earth, the kingdom of God. Isn't that beautiful? Scripture's so cool, isn't it? So what we see, the second proclamation, the second angel It's the loud singing that John heard that we studied last week. He said, I heard the 144,000 like a loud roaring voice worshiping the lamb. It's our declaration of victory. It will be our proclamation on the day of Jesus. We won't be proclaiming the gospel anymore. We'll be proclaiming Jesus has come. Everything the dragon has built from its foundation has been reduced to dust And God has vindicated his people. That will be our proclamation that day. Now, I want to show you something else that happens here. He talks about immorality. If you guys remember last week, we we studied this symbolism of the 144,000 virgins. And I explained this, right? So let me look at this passage in Revelation chapter 17. We're going to study in a future sermon. Okay? Revelation chapter 17, verse 5 says this on her forehead, Babylon. On her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. But let's just close in prayer on that one. How's that, right? (laughs) So we understand, here this is important if you understand. Throughout Scripture, sexual sin is described as one of the primary symptoms of spiritual unfaithfulness. So, just so you understand pragmatically what I'm speaking about, the most heartbreaking. And shameful failure of spiritual leaders in the church often stems from sexual immorality. The worst thing I could do to grace life is to fall to sexual immorality, and there's a reason. Do you notice the powerful contrast between how he describes Babylon? He talks about the sexual sin of Babylon, and then he talks about the purity of the 144,000 in the passage before. That's on purpose. He says, the 144,000 are pure. Those who worship Babylon are impure. As we learned, Hebrew literature saw virginity less about sexuality and more as a symbol of faithfulness and strength and focus and devotion to a cause. The sexual sin of Babylon is graphic, but it's a powerful symbol of how God sees those who choose this world over the gospel. But then there's the third proclamation, the third angel. It's judgment day. So you have the gospel. That's the age we're in now. During this age of tribulation that we are enduring, that John says we're all partners in. Then we have the return of Jesus, that proclamation. Now the third proclamation comes after the return of Jesus when he judges all evil for eternity. The third proclamation will be our declaration. He says, you will reign with me. The third proclamation will be our declaration of the final final sentence on Babylon and all who received her mark. In other words, all who chose this world over the next. The fulfillment of the gospel warning that we are proclaiming this day to all nations, that judgment is coming, repent, follow Jesus. It's a warning that sadly the world consistently, stubbornly ignores. He talks about the wine of God's wrath. Psalm 75, verse 8, look at this. In the hand of the Lord is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. What a graphic picture of the wrath of God. The wine of God's wrath symbolizes the pouring out of God's wrath, and we'll learn a lot more about the pouring out of God's wrath when we get to the seven bowls of judgment to come. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today. We'll have enough later, trust me. (laughs) But he does say that there is torment day and night. Here's another example of incredible contrast between the first half of chapter 14 and the half we're looking at today. Remember we talked about this last week. Here's the contrast between the people of God and those who dwell on the earth who worship Babylon. As we are experiencing at the same moment in eternity that we are experiencing the joy of eternal worship with Jesus, those who worship Babylon experience eternal judgment. We have experiencing eternal worship. They are experiencing simultaneously eternal judgment. It's the fate of the unredeemed. And this doctrine of eternal judgment, not annihilation and not unconsciousness, this doctrine of eternal judgment here, frankly, I don't know how you can read the Bible and try to deny it. It's kind of like, why are you fighting it? I mean, you either have to say, nah, the Bible's not true, or, okay, the Bible's true and it has some troubling things to say about judgment. You can be one or the other. You can't say the Bible's true, but this doesn't really mean what it says. Okay. But I want you to notice something. He describes the aroma of their judgment rising up. You notice the similarities for those of you that are maybe Old Testament students, how the Old Testament describes the smoke of burnt offerings rising up to God as a pleasing aroma? It's the same symbolism. Yes, it's a troubling image, and we'll talk more about it in the weeks to come. All right, that's the history and the theology What about the personal application? I want to talk about our proclamation. This was the sermon preview this week, as you can see. Any proclamation of the gospel that ignores, omits, or denies warnings of eternal judgment is a false gospel. Look, I'd rather consider myself a lover, not a fighter. But when you consider these three proclamations of the church... It's no wonder Jesus said, I'm warning you, the world will hate you as it does me. Because while the gospel is certainly good news for us, it is not a market-tested message for those who dwell on the earth. And remember, we've learned that those who dwell on the earth is another symbol or way of saying those who do not have faith in Christ. See, this Jesus, this judgment Jesus, is not who the world tells us they want our Jesus to be, is it? They want him to be the meek and humble, loving, all-forgiving, social gospel Jesus. And he is those things. <clears throat> now today, the second and third proclamations are future proclamations, as I said, for the day that Jesus returns. But today, our 100% primary focus is that first proclamation. Look what he says at the last part. I've put this verse up here again because it's very important. Here's what he says. He says, write these things down for those who know Jesus, who know me. Here is a call for endurance for the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their their faith in Jesus. The commandments, I believe, is directly related to the Great Commission. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Remember the last time John said that? It was in the letters to the churches. Write this to the church and so and so and write this. He does it again. Write this. In other words, he's talking directly to Christians. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. These ominous warnings about God's wrath and the command to repent. I'm just here to tell you they are crucial to the gospel that we preach. But it is tempting, right, to soften our proclamation just a little bit, maybe. Maybe sometimes we decide strategically to skip over the warnings of judgment and go right to mercy and grace. It's kind of like people who rip open an Oreo just to eat the white stuff in the middle. You people, I don't know what's wrong with you. The chocolate is delicious. Yes, the whole thing together. In heaven, that's how they will be eaten. That's later in Revelation. You'll see that. It's very clear. (laughs) (laughs) Quadruple stuff, no doubt about it. (laughs) So, all right. Considering how the world resents this side of our gospel, you can certainly understand the temptation, right? And many churches throughout history some even, sadly, here in our own city have given in to that temptation. That Jesus is not the way, he's a way, and, and God, not, nobody's going to face judgment. God will end up saving everyone. Here's the problem, though. If the gospel you preach has no threat of judgment, then the promise of grace and mercy is pointless, meaningless, and with no value. Who needs grace and mercy and forgiveness if there's no sin to be judged? It's the danger of judgment that makes the grace and mercy and forgiveness from our Jesus such a sweet and precious promise. John is reminding us to be faithful to that first proclamation that he's given us throughout this tribulation. It is the Great Commission. Stay faithful to the gospel, he's saying. Don't cheat on Jesus with the philosophies of Babylon the Great. Resist the temptation and you will be blessed. But now let me explain why we can say that. And why we are motivated to do this message not in an arrogant, disgusting, pompous way, but in a humble, loving, gracious, peaceful as doves way. Matthew 26, 39, the uh, second half. This is what Jesus said before his crucifixion. My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. What was he talking about the cup? The cup of wrath here we see in Revelation chapter 14. The one we saw in Psalm 75 and everywhere else in scripture. Jesus says, look, heavenly dad, I'm ready to drink this cup of wrath to the dregs for your people. I don't want to, but nevertheless, I will do it because this is your will. These words from our Jesus are the inspiration, the motivation for why we will stay faithful to the proclamation of the full gospel. The wine of wrath poured out on Babylon is the same wrath that Jesus drank for us. And if you are a follower of Jesus and the Spirit of God has marked you for you, for all who have ears to hear this proclamation, we know this, that Jesus has given us a way of escape from judgment. Judgment that we so much deserve. That's why for us, those who the Holy Spirit has marked, the gospel isn't a proclamation that we would resent because of its words of judgment. But that gospel becomes for us a precious calling it's a proclamation calling us to forgiveness instead of judgment it's a proclamation that's calling us to reconciliation instead of separation it's a proclamation calling us to freedom in christ instead of slavery to babylon and all of its ills it's a proclamation calling us to living a life of righteousness instead of immorality and evil That's the precious side of the gospel, the healing side, the comforting side. And our gratitude for what the gospel has done for us, that is what inspires our faithful obedience to proclaim all of it. And because the gospel has done this in our lives, it brings us to the same place of Jesus. Look, we don't want to talk about your judgment, Jesus, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours Aren't you thankful Jesus drank the judgment you deserve so you wouldn't have to drink it on the day he returns so that you could be one of those who proclaims fallen as Babylon? So once we realize all this, our need, and, and what Jesus has done in drinking the cup of wrath, then we understand how our proclamation of judgment isn't arrogant, as some try to make it. I believe those who preach it in an arrogant way haven't really learned what it means to follow Jesus. We understand our proclamation isn't angry. That's politics. That's not the gospel. Our proclamation isn't confrontational. That's the way of Babylon, not the way of Jesus. What Jesus has done for us inspires us with humility, and gratitude and passion to faithfully proclaim his gospel to all nations. It is a proclamation not of self-righteousness or finger-pointing or spiritual superiority. It's a proclamation that starts off with this foundational reality. We're no better, we're no smarter, and we're not superior. We deserve judgment just like everyone else. But the grace and mercy of our Jesus has saved us from judgment and he can save you from it as well. It's a proclamation that says, yes, judgment is coming. But our Jesus has made a way of escape for those who have ears to hear it. And that's how this bold proclamation becomes our passionate, earnest, loving plea to the unredeemed. It's a proclamation to all nations that says, please, while there's still time, abandon your feckless hope in Babylon and join us as we follow Jesus together. This Is the proclamation of our precious little church here on Lockwood Ridge Road. And it is a proclamation of the rest of the faithful churches in our city, in our state, in our nation, and in the world. And it will be until the day Jesus returns and we get to proclaim the other two. Dear Jesus, we are begging you, keep us humble. so that we are inspired to be faithful, to proclaim your truth. Lord, keep us from thinking that we can make the gospel better if we just change it a little bit here or change it a little bit there. That's not what you intended the gospel to be. You have given us this proclamation that is directly overhead that all can hear, that all can see. And Lord, as we proclaim it, the last thing we wanna be is angry, or arrogant, or judgmental, or finger-waggers. Help us in humility, serve those around us by pleading with them while there's still time. Embrace the love of Jesus. Join us in following him. Keep us faithful to this proclamation. Help us fight the temptation to change it in any way. Because you are better at writing gospels than we are. In Jesus' name, amen.